Hi, and welcome to the Let's Talk Healthy Pets podcast. I'm Dr. Karen Becker, Dr. Mercola's Chief Wellness Veterinary Consultant, and I'm excited to share with you the latest news about pet health to guide you in keeping your animal companions healthy, comfortable, and happy throughout their lives. My goal as a proactive vet is to empower pet owners to make knowledgeable decisions to extend the lifespan and well-being of their animals. If you're looking for more pet health tips, you can also subscribe to my free daily newsletter at healthypets.mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy today's podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Karen Becker, and today I have a friend and fellow holistic colleague, Dr. Lori Koger. I asked Dr. Koger to join me today. We were actually emailing last, well, about two weeks ago now, and I we were talking about some of the woes and frustrations of being a holistic practitioners. And I said, you know, this would these are good topics for us to talk about. How about an interview? And you graciously accepted. So thank you, Dr. Koger, for joining me. Thank you for the invite. And if I, if I look to my right, it's because I have a puppy uh, who is getting into mischief. So please. Okay. And, <laughs> you know, we should talk about, don't let me forget, at the end of our interview, we should talk about kind of holistic rearing, holistic puppy breeding and rearing is, is thank, thankfully becoming a thing. Absolutely. And yeah. starting off right is so important. And starting off right actually starts, actually, maybe we'll just start with that. Starting off right actually starts with, you know, you, you are thinking about the nutrition of the dogs that you are thinking about breeding, like a year before you're thinking about breeding them. You're thinking about supercharging both the, you know, the sire and the dam so that yeah. they are physiologically and nutritionally really well prepared to be able to epigenetically give to that, to your next litter, really great things. Did you, you've been breeding for a while and you've been a veterinarian for a while. Did you just blend those two loves into kind of a proactive holistic breeding protocol or how did you, how did that Um, desire come about? Well, as a child, I had horses and dogs and showed and competed with both. And my family was involved in breeding Labradors. Mm, So it was, it was there from the start, so to speak. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, at college, of course, I took a hiatus because you can have, at Cornell, there's the saying, you can have an A or you can have some other stuff. And I chose the A. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then and I came back to it, started in Labradors and morphed into Australian Shepherds. Uh, but right now, the yeah, puppy yeah. on my right is 11 weeks old. Um, and she is a third to fourth generation raw fed, naturally reared puppy. Um, so I've been in that realm of things for four generations of dogs. And Lori, do you see what, I, I have never bred anything, so I can't speak to this, but I have seen third and fourth generation raw fed puppies and they're entirely different for a lot of different reasons, but you've literally watched, you know, as you have, as you've honed and, and refined and retooled what are some of the differences you see at both as it from a breeder perspective and a veterinary perspective? What do you see? Like, do you see these litters getting healthier and healthier living longer? Like what, what, what are you seeing? Um, hopefully living longer. Yes. Um, certainly lower incidence of everyday diseases. Mm. You know, we don't deal with your infections, lower parasitism, parasitism rates. Yeah. Uh, these puppies actually, I dewormed them once and that was it. No coccidia, no, none of the things that plague other um, litters of puppies. 
and they grow differently. My birth weights are usually higher in yeah. raw fed dogs and they never get that chubby puppy look. They're, they're of adequate body weight, but they grow totally differently. Um, and behavior is yeah. less, less uh, frantic puppy, more, more, I would say more normal, more what I believe a dog should be and what normal canine behavior and puppy behavior is. And what about uh, as you track these, like your last litter or the litter before that, Steve Brown was saying that he, towards the end of, of his breeding career, he had puppies that would grow into adults that did not have allergies. Do you see, you know, midlife and older animals, do they have less lifestyle related stuff? They do have less lifestyle related stuff. And um, my oldest current dog, who is of my breeding, um, and an uncle to the puppy on my right, um, he damaged his teeth. He has genetically, he has poor dentition. His teeth are small and the enamel is not strong. But I haven't had to do anything about it other than, you know, use appropriate recreational bones and such and put up with the fact that his teeth are all stained and worn. Yeah, but that's that's really the only thing I've dealt with. I have come into cancer as so many people have, and it doesn't matter what you do, cancer is going to strike a certain percentage of individuals, yep. Yep. Uh, no matter how healthy. Yeah, um, but in general, I mean, I don't come home to diarrhea. I don't come home to upset stomachs, ear infections, skin infections, all the things that I see every day at the hospital. Yeah, yeah, and are you finding as an integrated practitioner, but then also as a breeder, do you do a lot of reproduction? Do you have people, clients coming to you? Oh, I have a load of breeder clients because yeah, I speak the language. Yeah. And I have to say, and this kind of um, pairs with some of the things we were emailing about, some of my breeder clients frustrate the heck out of me. Mm -hmm. I have one that insists upon feeding, I'm going to call it Acme pet food, not to pick on any one particular brand. I gave her a restaurant depot card. It's like, you can go get fresh food at a discount and she's reluctant to change. I have another one who's totally opposite who I will say, look, your puppies look wormy. Let's run a fecal. Oh no, they're fine. I don't want to put anything yeah. in them. I don't want to vaccinate them at all. I don't want to do any drugs. And somewhere in the middle is where I think is best for the dog. What do you yeah. think? Well, I couldn't agree more. And I think that, that the kind of the premise for the backstory of why I was interested in talking with you is because you are kind of in that breathing world. You, you are, you're up against all of these issues that every dog or cat parent has to, has to confront and deal with and figure out ethically where they're at from deworming, vaccines, topical flea tick, heartworm prevention, spay neuter, all those things. You have both the breeder perspective and then the veterinary perspective. And you're a you're an integrative doctor. So you you kind of have all of these experiences and vantage points blended together. So I think you're you're a really good perspective to have these conversations with because one of the things that I have run into repeatedly People find out, okay, you know, there's this holistic or integrative doctor in town. I want to see her because I'd like to start with at least toxic options first. But in, from my perspective, what I end up getting and seeing 
are people that say, I don't even want to run a fecal. I'm holistic. I don't want to, I don't want to check for parasites. And my response is, listen, not checking for parasites isn't being holistic. It's being reactive. It's doing nothing isn't holistic. It's doing nothing. But there's this mindset that that they don't want to maybe find out. So when you have people that say, I don't want to run a fecal, it's no different than doing, doing nothing. I mean, you end up, if your dog or cat has a parasite, the only way that we're going to know is to check. And the only way to you know, check is to run a fecal. And I would never recommend deworming something without figuring out if, if that's necessary. Are you running into that as well, that people say, I just would prefer, like even heartworm prevention. I don't want to, I don't want to run a heartworm test because I'm not going to give heartworm prevention anyway. Right. And, you know, I will, um, you know, the current time of COVID, I understand money is short. And yeah. sometimes people are, aren't comfortable saying it's not in the budget right now. Yep. I mean, I wish they would because, hey, there's no judgment. COVID has been huff, tough on all of us. Yep. But I do run into the, I don't want to know. And my, my response is, well, there's no downside. I'm just taking a blood sample. You know, nothing's going in your dog. Yes. It's information, yes. it's data. It's, I actually think good holistic or integrated medicine is more science oriented sometimes than even conventional medicine. Yeah. I want that information and yeah. you know, I get to choose what I do with it. So if, let's say we run that hypothetical fecal and we find hookworms. Okay, now you have an array of options to address it and yeah. it's your choice. And that, I couldn't agree with you more. And it's that exchange that uh, I love when my clients say, listen, I'm interested in trying some, and you know, so my dog has hookworms, let's say, and I'm interested in trying a natural protocol. The cool thing is that you can, you can try whatever the client wants mm -hmm. and then recheck. And if, right. if the treatment was effective, fantastic. And if not, then we'll move along. But, you know, there's a lot of different ways. Same with heartworm. I've had several heartworm positive dogs and people say, listen, I want, I've read online or I want to try this and I'll give them my suggestions. You know, here's least toxic, moderately toxic, highly toxic. Let's start obviously with non-toxic options. But the sure. cool thing about having baseline diagnostics is you have a reference point from where you need to work. And I think that deciding to not get that baseline option it's a scary, it's a scary thing because you don't know what direction to go in. And you also really don't know what you're treating if you're not running any diagnostics. Right. right. I, I personally, I love diagnostics. You know, it gives me one more layer of information beyond what my eyes can see, my hands can feel. Yeah. And I'll pick up on things early and, and then, you know, run blood work every year, do things routinely so that we can pick up on the little list of changes. It's a very proactive approach, which you and I default to, I think. Yeah. And, and I think what I, oftentimes, I think once you explain to, to clients, listen, I, I'm not, you know, we're not trying to, to spend your money unnecessarily. We're trying to get a, a baseline of health to know, first of all, is there something there that we don't know about that we need to know about so we can begin addressing it. But then if, if, if your animal is truly as healthy as we hope that they are on the inside, as the test results will show, then we're not going to bump into something later on and be shocked or overwhelmed or heartbroken that we, that we missed it. And, you know, back when I was spaying and neutering everything at six months of age, it was shocking the number of times that you discover mildly elevated or profoundly elevated liver or kidney enzymes in those six month old animals. And you think, my gosh, thank goodness. I did the blood work right. because anesthetizing that animal, it would 
could have been a complete nightmare experience for everyone involved. So I no longer spay and neuter everything at six months of age, but that's another, that's another, that's another topic. It's another topic, you know, for, for your litters, Lori, when people ask about the whole spay neuter topic, what is right now, what are, what's your counsel as a breeder? Uh, in my agreement, they agree not to spay or neuter before 18 months right now. Okay. okay. And you know, many of my people have had dogs from me or my friends in my Aussie community before. Yeah. So they're not surprised by this. Um, I think out of this litter, I have two locally that I will see as patients at the hospital. So, yeah. you know, that's, that's the best of all worlds. I that have is. control. Because yeah, as, as we, it, as a good breeder says, you know, it is your dog when we put it in your hands, but it is always my puppy. And yeah. there's that level of commitment and responsibility. And for me and my agreement, I go through step by step. You know, I put my part in, now it's up to you. Here are the management steps you need to take. Yeah. And owners agree to that. You know, they really, they're, they're coming on board. I'm so grateful for yeah. all the information that's out there that helps people get to a better approach. What else, just down the breeder aspect, mm -hmm. what else do you think you are doing pretty differently than let's say a conventional breeder or even like in your breeder in your breeder contract, is there anything different that integrative or holistic breeders are thinking or doing or approaching things in a different well, way? Yeah, I give them my vaccine protocol, which is minimalistic and uh, thoughtfully timed, if, even if I don't have a normograph, which I think you and Rodney talked about yeah. uh, previously. Um, yeah. So food is in there, vaccine practices are in there, spay and neuter is in there. Um, the agreement is standard in other clause, you know, mm -hmm. other clauses. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if they can't keep the dog, it comes back to me. No questions asked anytime during its life. Um, you know, and they are not to put the dog anyplace else without my blessing. So I guess I'm a little controlling. Um, but yeah. again, that life exists because of my decisions. So yeah. I, it is, as I said, always my puppy. Yeah. And I make sure, and, and, you know, responsible breeders do that. Yes. yes. And I would assume it, people, it has to be comforting for people that are seeking out a third generation raw fed sure. dog. And you're in the competition world, people that are seeking that out, it has to be a level, an additional level of comfort that, oh, by the way, my breeder is a veterinarian. I mean, that, that helps. <laughs> there's yeah, bonus points there. Bonus points. Um, yeah, that's definitely, awesome. Definitely. And um, you know, I, my people are great and I get pictures and phone calls and everything, you know, it's extended family. Yeah, which is, and that's the other neat piece is that like the fact that they're coming back to you for, you know, a puppy, the next puppy, you end up having a lifelong relationship with the people. Yes. And it is good because you're able to keep tabs. I mean, it would be, I think it would be very difficult for me to give my puppies away into the world and never hear or see or talk to them again. That would be very hard. So it's good that you have these lifelong relationships because I, I would think that that has to be very comforting to you as well. You know where they're at and what's going on. And most importantly, if there are hiccups or bumps, you're there to help be a part of, of, the, of the solution, which is important. Very important. Do you have people contact you from around the country, like intentionally looking for raw, because the, I have people contact me and say, hey, where do I go for a raw fed puppy? They can be, it, that's a hard thing to find. 
It can be, but it's getting easier. And social media, of course, makes it easier. Help. Um, so yeah, I have people contacting me from all over when I announce a litter. And you know, this is the first litter I've bred in four years. So yeah. it's not like I'm churning out puppies. I breed when I want a puppy. Yeah. Or when my girl is getting so old and I'm forced to get a puppy because I'm, there's a certain age where I'm not going to breed her beyond. Um, so we'll come back to that. Do you, uh, do you, you put the puppies on raw. Do the, do sometimes people, do they, do they sometimes ask for a hybrid puppy that they want? They're like, I said, I want the puppy to be able to eat kibble and eat raw. Or do you strictly wean them onto raw? What's your protocol for food? Uh, my puppies start eating at about three and a half weeks. Um, I'm blessed to have a source of very fresh, pastured, organic, oh my God, goat's milk. And I usually put in some ground meat with that. And that's, they start with goat's milk, goat's milk with ground meat. Um, and then on to raw. I'm introducing ground bone probably around six weeks of age. Mm -hmm. uh, and it has to be finely ground. Yeah. But yeah, if you want a hybrid feeding program, you'll get a puppy somewhere else. Um, I'm hard line on okay. that. And, okay. you know, not judgmentally, but this is what I'm, this is my product, if you will. And I generally mm -hmm. don't call dogs product, but this is the package. And yeah. it comes with a raw requirement. I don't care what you use for treats as much, as long as it's not gross things. But yeah. core diet is a properly planned raw diet, whether yeah. that be commercial or DIY. Mm -hmm. Okay, fantastic. So, so back to this kind of topic of I'm holistic, therefore I'm not going to, I'm not going to test or what prompted our email conversation. I'm not going to give pain meds. Now for me, yes. pain meds are non-negotiable. Like this, right. it is I almost feel like as veterinarians, regardless of how, how you label yourself as a vet, whether you're conventional or homeopathic or holistic or whatever, integrative, whatever you want to call yourself, I believe as doctors, we have an obligation, like we take an oath to, to, to prevent and stop pain. I, I just feel like this, that the whole topic of pain management should be not, regardless of species, whether you treat humans or you treat animals, it's just non-negotiable. Right. I, I completely agree. And, you know, if you twist your ankle, you're going to reach for something to address pain, whether that's an ibuprofen or an ice pack or whatever, you're going to do something. So how is it acceptable for us to, you know, have an injured animal or perform a surgical procedure and not address pain or address it in a half hearted way? Well, and, but I think that that, that's where I would argue my clients that have tried to say, I'm not interested in pain meds. I just got to the point where I could see initially when I first opened my practice, I could see that there was some pushback about, Ooh, I don't want to use opioids. I, I don't want to use NSAIDs. NSAIDs. But I, I would say, yes, I would say more, more, I get more pushback, I guess, for opiates than Mm -hmm. NSAIDs, but, but equally, you know, yeah. my statement is have, if you, if we were going to have our, 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 if we, if, if as humans, if we were un going to undergo a splenectomy or, or a hysterectomy, I don't know if human, there probably are humans that would say, I don't want pain meds, but I, I don't know of any, I can't imagine having a body part removed and then saying, you know, I'm going to pass on the pain meds. No. I don't, 
I don't think so. In fact, I think that the, the difference, the, the difference or the definition between like torture is pain management. Yeah. Removing yeah. something without pain management, the definition's torture. Removing something and then providing pain management during the post-operative recovery period, that's humane and kind. But what I found was that my clients were saying, listen, I'm going to just use homeopathic arnica. I'm going to just use devil's claw, or I'm going to use a blend of herbs. When you undergo hysterectomy or splenectomy, or you have a kidney removal, or you have some massive, you have an amputation, that is not, um, that level of pain is not going to be covered by homeopathic remedies or any herb, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. And when you think about surgical um, procedures, in general practice. Spay and neuter, probably the most common. Number three yeah. is probably a TPLO for a cruciate repair. Yeah. And in that procedure, the tibia is actually cut. Bone is cut. Now, are you gonna throw Arnica at that? Or are you going to go to a higher class of pain relief? You know, come on people. And, and so, so what is your, so do you, do you, are you in the same situation? I have to assume that every holistic practitioner is similar to me and that you do get clients saying, listen, I'm not interested in provide, I'm nervous about the side effects. Mm -hmm. What's response, Lori? Like, do you, what? Um, uh, and this will just be a moment of frustration. Um, I, a lot of times the people aren't willing to tell me that they aren't on board with pain management. So they take it and they go home and they don't. Oh. And then they bring the dog back in after the dog has, um, you know, chewed at their incision or is not responding and recovering the way it should. And I ask, you know, well, how many uh, meloxicam do you have left? Oh, I have the whole bottle because I was afraid to give it. And I'm like, oh, my God, you know, yeah, suffering. Yeah, ab absolutely. They're suffering. And you know, that, that is a, that maybe what needs to happen as integrated practitioners is that we need to, to do a better job of explaining mm -hmm. pain wind up. And the fact that in my opinion, the very best pain management, you start it, you know, before the, the procedure starts so that you're keeping it minimized and you're not you know allowing things to ramp up. But maybe as doctors, we're not doing our part in explaining that to our clients. Like maybe a part of the the pre-surgical consult needs to be a long and deep and, and a good explanation of yeah. why preemptive pain management, you know, it has to happen starting the second that they walk in the door and then continuing until we know that that animal's pain-free. Maybe we have failed our clients as, at explaining why it's so critically important to give pain management and manage all pain. Like you said, rolling your ankles, one thing, having part of your tibia cut off, is well worth pain management and yet people are hesitant because of the side effects maybe we haven't done our job in explaining that side effects can be long-term chronic pain from not managing pain correctly absolutely and in the end you know let's say we're using an NSAID post-operatively that also takes down inflammation yeah. and inflamed tissues don't heal fast so you're speeding recovery by giving yeah. an appropriate and thoughtfully chosen medication and remember, we have our pre-op blood work. We know what the dog's organs can handle. You know, by, by really looking at the big picture and getting as much data as possible, we can make very safe choices. Yeah. 
And are you doing, are you doing a lot of hybrid protocols? I think one of the things that, that my clients have relaxed into is they know at least with me that pain management drugs, hardcore drugs, not natural pain management, hardcore prescription drugs are coming their way. And I hope I've done a really good job of explaining why we have to do this. But then at the same time, if we are nervous about kidney or liver function, if we're nervous about lymphatic detoxification, we can add things on to assist with that. Do you have clients asking for that kind of yes. hybrid? Yeah. yeah. And we offer post-operative laser for yeah. all our patients, every procedure. Um, and we have people who come back for laser treatment. I have dogs with the ACC loop, which is a pulsed electromagnetic field. Um, we have a physical therapy uh, unit. So heat, cold, um, PT, post cruciates and such. All of those things that speed healing and decrease pain. So yeah. I love the multimodal approach. Um, and do you have um, less arguments? Would you say? Would you say in the last five years you are arguing less about pain management than you had the first half of your career, the first part of your career? Yeah, I think so. Um, because remember, I've practiced long enough to remember when there were no NSAIDs, save aspirin, that we could give dogs, and people used to say, "Oh no, a little pain post-op will keep her yep. quiet," which is yep. barbaric, um, terrible. Terrible, but that's what we believed. And sadly, there are still practitioners practicing that believe that and do not use pain meds. But I think people now, owners are very much on board with, I don't want spot to hurt. Yeah. And they're accepting. And what about, what about stoic animals? I think that that's the other thing is even with, I was thinking about dental extractions and how <laughs> I'm such a weenie when it comes to dentistry. Like I think about my own mouth. And I go to a biologic dentist, you know, she, I go to a holistic dentist and she knows I'm phobic about, you know, sounds and yeah. feelings in my mouth. So she's really good at making sure that there's a, not only no discomfort, but that my anxiety is managed. She's really good. But my thought is how often do we as veterinarians pull teeth and say, oh, you know, there, there might be a little sore for a couple of days, but everything will be okay. We do that a lot. And and part of it, I think, is veterinarians may not recognize that, that there could be more discomfort in our patients. And part of it is that animals are hardwired to not necessarily show extravagant pain. Yeah. So um, do, you, do so, you have stoic, stoic, patient, stoic patients? How are you? Do, you? do you have people saying, I'm not, you know, my dog didn't need it. My dog didn't need pain management because he appeared to be fine? Yeah. So um, I get, I get that a lot. People do not know how to assess pain in their animals. And, you know, oh, he's fine. He didn't cry. Well, dogs aren't wimps. He didn't yeah. use the leg, did he? Um, you know, they'll say, oh, he's, he's not hurting. He's doing everything. He's eating, he's drinking. And they don't know how to see loss of function. Yeah. It's a sign of pain or, you know, choosing to lie down all the time as a sign of pain. So I think that's something we need to step up is give owners even just three little things that make them think, is my animal really in pain? And yeah. if, I, if I hit a brick wall on that, I will say, look, it's going to speed healing because we're going to take down inflammation and I'll refer to pain meds as an anti-inflammatory. Mm -hmm. And the people, people are very accepting of anti-inflammatories, more so yeah. if you say pain relief. Isn't that interesting? Crazy. 
Yeah. It just, it's just almost as, and, and I get it. I think the other thing people, people may listen to this and think, well, you're not, you know, you're not very concerned about my dog's liver function. And I, I am quite concerned about long-term use of some of these drugs, but we're talking short-term use perioperatively to help really control pain so that, so that those animals can recover as quickly as possible and get back to living their best, fullest, pain-free life. However, so then if you practice, Lori, long enough ago where you didn't have unbelievable pain management, you had to, the first part of your career had to be spent watching animals living potentially with the chronic pain because they were not managed they were adequately. Not, I, I graduated vet school in 1991. Um, and yeah, we did not have the amazing tools that we have now. And aspirin was a common recommendation for dogs. Wow. And that, that was it. Um, and then I think actually Rimadil was probably the first prescription NSAID that yeah. came along. And having coming from Labradors and having Bernie's Mountain Dog clients, I ran into cases, fortunately, yep. that I had not prescribed, but of dogs that went into liver failure secondary to Rimadil. And, and don't you think that, that, that I graduated in 97 and that was the exact time that all of these yep. dogs were having problems. And that put the fear of God in me as well. I mean, you don't want to prescribe something. Oh, I still something, don't right? prescribe it. My colleagues do. We have it on the yep. shelf. Yeah. Um, and I guess, you know, everybody has their own experience within their population of, of dogs and cats yeah. and stuff that works in one hospital might not work as well in another. Um, for me, I have few problems with Meloxicam and Prevacox. So those are my go-tos. Mm -hmm. um, other people are fine with Rimadil. Okay. As long as the dog's pain is addressed and they do okay, I don't care. I just don't want them suffering. And do you, are you a gabapentin or tramadol girl or not so much? Well, tramadol, for me, tramadol has been proven to be useless. Yep. Um, and there was an excellent article, I want to say the Washington Post or maybe the New York Times Magazine, about tramadol as a gateway to opioid abuse. I want to say in Japan, it's really mm. a serious problem. But there was, you read that report in the Journal of the AVMA. Yep showed really tramadol has no effect other than some sedation. So I'm not a tramadol person at all. GABA for neuropathic pain in conjunction with something else, because again, the data tells us that GABA alone really doesn't do much. Yeah. And people, even my holistic clients will ask for GABA by name. And I, I don't, I don't get it. I guess they, they perceive it as a safer option Whereas That's I exactly. see it as a less effective option. And I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think gabapentin, at least in my practice, gabapentin was perceived as a, this as safer to as a safer alternative to NSAIDs. So everyone just wanted gabapentin. It just isn't wildly effective unless you have nerve pain. Right. It is it isn't wildly effective. And so but that's when you a multimodal approach could be quite effective where you could use some acupuncture and some laser and a little gaba or low dose naltrexone along with um you know, intermittent NSAID use, or, you know, you can stagger those things to, to be beneficial. Do you have people who um, are, is your, is the rehab part? Because, you know, that's, that's, I think that that's another big piece that was missing in veterinary medicine. And I think oftentimes still is yes. when you read about humans that underwent the first hip replacement surgery, there was no physical therapy afterwards and they had profound failure. It wasn't that the, the surgery was a success, 
But long-term use of people initially getting brand new hips or knees was a failure because we didn't realize the critical instrumental success in rehabilitation having to be paired with surgery for long-term successful outcome. They have to go through physical therapy. And we're still not in veterinary medicine. We're still not, in my opinion, recommending as much physical therapy, which is called rehabilitation in veterinary medicine. I think it's a very underutilized, really important piece of the puzzle for long-term success when it comes to post ACL or TPLO, you've got a lot of people that still aren't participating with suggested rehab. Is that a problem where you are as well? It is a huge problem. Even in my own practice where we have six veterinarians and I recommend rehab across the board. I'll recommend rehab as a starting point for a partial cruciate tear before surgery um, as well as other things. And I have colleagues who don't recommend it. It's like, it's, it's just downstairs. You know, it's from the financial standpoint, it brings revenue into the hospital. If that's your focus, recommend it. It's better medicine. It's what the dog should have. Um, but yeah, rehab is underutilized. I have boarded surgeons who aren't on board with rehab, which to me is just crazy. And is there a reason, I mean, in, in discussing with your colleagues, is there a reason why they just don't think that physical therapy is beneficial? I think they don't think it's necessary. I think they consider the client's budget. You know, I, their, yeah. motives, their motives are pure. It's just falling in line with their philosophy, which differs from mine um, and many others. But they don't see it as necessary. They're like dogs have recovered from cruciate ligament surgery, for example, for decades. Uh, but we can do it better. We can do it faster. One of the challenges of cruciate dogs is they're usually chubby. We can get weight off them during a time period when we can't really get them out for walks. You know, we, yeah. can, we can use the underwater treadmill to burn some calories with no concussion. There's just so many benefits. Well, and for me, when, when I went to veterinary school, they basically told us, listen, dogs over 50 pounds, if they, if they blow one cruciate, just set the clock and tell your clients to start saving, they're going to blow the other. Mm-hmm. And when you think about the rehab part of that, it's like, well, why, why, why do both knees have to go? In my opinion, both knees have to go because physical therapy was not a, was not a part of any of this. Right. So by default, of course, both knees are going to go yeah. because we weren't necessarily managed that managing them musculoskeletally in a way that prevented the the healthy knee from going, but we're, we're left with that whole reactive medicine thing. Like this concept of proactively preventing things from occurring still hasn't necessarily trickled down to all of veterinary medicine. Yeah. And you know, it's going to vary, although our vet schools are phenomenal, it's going to vary from school to school where the emphasis is in that program, you know, what the school's particular strengths are. And you know, what the person's experience, anybody coming from the horse world is generally right on board with rehab mm. because horse people are used to that sort of stuff. Horse people had lasers before small animal practitioners had lasers. Do you have younger veterinarians in, with, this, with your six doctor practice? Are the younger veterinarians coming out squared away with excellent pain management options. They, they realize it's a non-negotiable part of surgery. Are they squared away with some of these things that maybe the older veterinarians are, are struggling with in terms of acceptance? It varies greatly. I have one colleague who is all about pain management. I think he even took the certification in pain management. Mm-hmm. 
but he's all about the drugs and he's got to use five drugs for everything. And that's his thing. I've got another one who is, you know, very simplistic, very, you know, does pain management, but very core. Um, of the new grads we've had, and we've had, I want to say two or three recently um, that were less than three years out of school. So I'll term them recent grads. They are scared to death of, of prednisone and other corticosteroids. Scared mm -hmm. to death. Mm -hmm. um, they're very open to Rimadyl, whereas the practice owner and myself, who are the two oldest vets, are more cautious. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's a little bit across the board in terms of their pain approaches, but none of them are letting anything go without addressing pain. Good, good. And do you have, is in your practice, pain management is re required? If, if a, is a client allowed to decline pain management? Um, generally speaking, no. Yeah. Um, you know, there might be the individual who had a dog, let's say hypothetically, pass of liver failure secondary to a drug, they might let that person slide or they might say, I'm going to send you to the pharmacy for a fentanyl patch or something, you know, totally different. Yeah. Uh, but by and large, it's part of the package. It's like you don't decline pre-op blood work and you don't decline post-op yeah. medications. Yeah. And that alone, I feel like we're, as a profession, we are slowly but certainly making steps in the right direction of doing our part in assuring comfort to our patients. I mean, that's a part of the oath that we took is in doing that. And I think um, pain management is a massive part of that for sure. And so not having it not be an option, optional pain management is something that yeah. is just cruel in my opinion. So well, I, I'm torture. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Okay. All good topics. Is there any other topics that I didn't cover? Let's see. I think, I think you hit them all. Um, the, and I think the up, what would be your takeaway, your ideal, let's say hypothetically for that post cruciate surgery dog, what would, in your perfect world, what would you do? In my perfect, in my perfect world, for a well-managed cruciate dog, I would have started, I would have done what we could ideally. So first of all, it starts back before the dog even has a partial tear. And what research, you know this, but for the audience that is listening, my theory on cruciate tears are a dog's ligaments are meant to be resilient and strong. And so if they're hit by a bus, of course they can tear their cruciate, but our dogs were not meant to get up on the couch or slide a little bit and tear their cruciate. So first of all, something is wrong at that level that we have this epidemic of dogs jumping on and off a couch. Dogs were meant to use their bodies and not rupture their ligaments. So my questioning about how cruciates are managed goes back to how cruciates happen. And I would say, in my opinion, that, that there is a profound nutritional component to why dogs are tearing their cruciates literally spontaneously. So I go back to what, what do we need to be doing nutritionally for puppies to prevent cruciates from rupturing? And that goes back to, in my opinion, providing counterprotective agents. So things that help build tendons and ligament resiliency. So focusing on mineral adequacy. So things like permamuscle and the high manganese treats. So I use a lot of permamuscle for treats and you can get 
dried perna muscle and you can use perna muscle as a topper and you can use beef trachea and you can use foods and treats that are high in glucosamine and MSM and things that help maintain ligament and tendon resiliency. So that's where I like to start along with maintenance chiropractic. So we know that, you know, puppies are all over the board and they, there's pelvis, you know, they broke, fall down stairs and they jump off the back of a deck and they do things to knock their skeletal system out of line. Lining their bodies back up as they abuse themselves, I think is really important. So preventing cruciates from blowing, I think is really important. Fixing their skeletal systems as, as they knock themselves out of whack, I think is really important. And then maintaining muscle tone. I think that we have a lot of dogs that are lean, but not well toned. And if you think about building musculature around strong, resilient knees means strong, resilient quads and glutes and a, a skeletal system that has been worked on a daily basis to be able to handle what dogs throw at them. Dogs are usually crazy, active, wild little beasties running around and they need to be able to run around and not damage themselves. But that's done through you know, good cardio, you have a resilient, strong musculoskeletal system that's put back in place when damage occurs, you're nourishing tendons and ligaments with good dietary support. Then if you have an animal that is hit by car and blows that knee, then I agree with you, you can start into non-toxic pain management and inflammation management strategies before surgery even occurs. So that's laser. You can do that um, perioperatively. You can control, you, you, work, you can work on pain management through rehabilitation therapies during the surgery. And then immediately after surgery, same thing. You, that animal can wake up having the influence of laser and massage and acupuncture and um, pain management done excellently in the hospital that goes home with a dog that is with an owner that is given the skills and the tools necessary to begin passive range of motion and to help do things at home to speed recovery while also caring for the opposite knee. I mean, I think that making sure that we're doing everything we can, that even though we're told the dogs are going to rupture both of their knees eventually, if they're, you know, over 40 pounds or 50 pounds, I think that that is something that if we let our clients know that there's, that there's a high risk of this happening, we can do things to prevent the good knee from going. So I think about preventing ACLs from occurring. I think about managing them excellently. Uh, if you know that you have a tear, managing them excellently during that perioperative period. But I think the biggest issue is because these are micro tears that are chronically having ligament tendon damage over a period of time, that oftentimes there's this year long process where they're tearing and, and, and developing trauma. And then eventually, you know, we have fraying to the point that the resiliency is no longer there. You have this fulminant traumatic event, like the dog jumps off the couch and then they become three-legged lame. At that point, in my opinion, the biggest issue I see is people say, ah, you know, I'm just going to wait and see, I'm going to wait and see. And the ligament's flapping in the wind and they need to go to surgery, but clients want to wait a year to see what they can do maybe without going to surgery. And a year later down the road, you have this massive amount of inflammation and the surgery is not nearly as successful because people wait too long. So my whole thing is prevent it from occurring, but if God forbid it happens, fix it fix it well with appropriate recovery, um, physical therapy, pain management, and prevent the other knee from going, but that if you know that you have a fulminant tear, fix it and fix it with a competent surgeon. Okay, that's my two cents. What's your two cents on how to, how to manage these my, things? My two cents is everything you just said. Um, but looking at big picture, you covered nutrition. I'm a vaccine person. Stop over-vaccinating your dog. Yeah. Yeah. Because vaccines add a component of inflammation to the body. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, 
slowly tearing cruciate, those little micro tears, don't need any help along the way. Um, I always tell my owners the single most important determinant of the success of the surgery is aftercare. Mm -hmm. So if they want to take that e-collar off and it licks, the dog licks his or her incision, it's going to become infected and we're going to have a nightmare. And, you know, do your management, do it right. Hopefully do it once. Yeah. Uh, start putting some money aside. Cruciates around here start at four grand. So yeah. that's a huge investment. Um, and yeah, follow instructions. We keep on our people. We talk to them about once a week, uh, that for pretty much for the first month and yeah, check yeah. in on them a lot. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm on board with you. Yep. Well, that's, it's good. And it's also good. I think that integrative holistic practitioners get together now and then like this and talk about, Hey, what are you doing? Hey, this is what I'm doing. What are you seeing? How can we do our jobs better? How can we communicate better? How can we prevent these top issues that we're seeing, how can we, how can we prevent them from happening? So I do like the fact that as integrative practitioners, we're thinking about the nutritional and the immunologic aspects of some of these injuries per se, because I don't think that dogs were rupturing cruciates left, right, and center a hundred years ago. I just don't think it was happening. I think that we're in an epidemic of cruciates and it does make you wonder why. Well, remember, I've been practicing almost 30 years. I used to see a cruciate or two every few months. Yeah. Now it's not unusual for me to see one or two a week. It is an epidemic. And I think it has to do with how our dogs are managed in terms of activity level. Yep. And COVID has been no great thing because then the dogs went from couch potatoes to four walks a day because we're all home. Yep. Big challenge for them. I think it has to do with what we're feeding them. The use of various chemicals, whether they be vaccines, flea and tick products, environmental toxins, all of this comes together and challenges the body. Yeah, for, cer for certain. And Lori, when, you, when you're seeing these cruciates, how many of them are coming in with owners saying, I have no idea how this happened? Like, would you say the majority? Or can people say, okay, no, my dog did jump off the deck? Yeah, I get probably one third that the owner has witnessed a traumatic event. You know, dog went chasing a Frisbee, landed poorly, cried out in pain, jumped off the deck. I get some that, you know, he's always been a little gimpy and then suddenly it was worse. Yeah. Um, and those are the ones that already have degenerative changes to the joint, as you alluded to, because they've inadvertently been sat on. Um, and yeah, probably a third of, I don't know. We, he went for a walk yesterday. He woke up like this. Yeah. And that's the piece I think that everyone should stop and pause and think about that dogs really were evolutionarily designed as athletes with resilient bodies that were not meant to rupture a tendon or ligament resting yeah. or, you know, doing the stairs in a normal fashion. We just, their bodies were meant to be more resilient than that, which should make us all stop and think, why did that just happen? Yeah. 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 Okay, all great information. Well, listen, I appreciate you taking me up on my uh, offer to have oh, you sure. mind jam and knock around some ideas that I think a lot of integrative practitioners are dealing with. It's nice to be able to, to talk about it uh, in, in this format. So I appreciate you sharing your insights. But I also love the fact that you are this beautiful hybrid blend of 
integrative breeder and integrative veterinarian because that whole breeding aspect, I think that we'll have to, we'll probably have a lot of comments and interest about the breeding aspect. Maybe we'll have you back again to talk about more about that integrative holistic breeding and questions people should ask, how to find integrative or holistic breeders and then, or if people were interested in becoming more integrative in their approach to breeding, there's, there's an art and science to that. So maybe we'll, we'll do that for interview number two. Sounds like fun. Thank you, Dr. Kojer, for your time. Thank you.